Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, we'll hear about the role of integrative medicine in pain management. I often have those patients follow up in our integrative medicine center because then there we have um, resources and time to talk about many of these other options to help treat pain other than just medication. And we'll learn how medical advances are allowing for intricate chest surgery to be done robotically through tiny incision. We're able to uh, do some of those same operations with incisions that are uh, about a centimeter big. And we'll meet a physician scientist at Upstate who is giving back to the nation where he was born, Afghanistan. We can educate the Afghan in this regard. And when Afghan girls have education, they will be able to give them independence. All that and a selection from our Healing Muse coming up after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore medicine, science, and health with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll talk with a chest surgeon about the operations he performs through tiny incisions with robotic assistance. Then we'll talk about improving education and healthcare in Afghanistan. But first, we'll learn how integrative medicine can help in pain management. Pain is an issue for a variety of patients for a variety of reasons. Here to discuss how integrative medicine may be helpful is Upstate's Dr. Caitlin Scarlett DeLuca. She's an assistant professor of pediatrics specializing in rheumatology, and she's involved with the Pediatric Integrative Medicine Center, and she's here to talk about pain management. So thanks for being here. I thanks. appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me, Amber. Let's start by talking about um, the causes of pain. Um, injury and illness, certainly, but um, there's other um, psychological factors, right? Oh, absolutely. Well, I think a big um, thing to you know, to start talking about, to introduce this topic, is the differences in pain. You know, there is acute pain, which is a normal part of the human experience. Um, you know, everybody experiences it at one point or the other. It often occurs after injury, um, surgeries, um, different things like that. and um, So acute just means sudden. That yes. It, it happens quickly or whatever. It happens quickly, it quickly. And, and appropriately. You know, the body responds to injury and, um, you know, the body has a natural healing process. And often with acute injury, there's visible components such as edema or redness or warmth around the injury site. And um, it's treated biomedically. Um, but then there's another kind of pain called chronic pain, and that pain is pain that's persisted beyond the normal period um, of healing. Um, usually it's several months um, after an injury happens, and your body, um, one's body is not having a normal physiologic response when this chronic pain ensues. So something has gone wrong with the nociceptive receptors, something's gone wrong with the peripheral or central pain processing systems in somebody's body, and um, and the mechanism is, is not right either. Often uh, the tissue is chronically inflamed or chronically injured, um, sending a recurrent signal of pain. The neural pathways themselves are actually disrupted. Now, it do, um, is the pain experience, is it different in children than in adults? 
Um, the pain, we, we see chronic pain in children as well from, you know, from a non-inflammatory process. Um, we might not see it as much as we do in the adult population, but we, we definitely see these chronic, um, these chronic pain syndromes in children and adolescents as well. Do children express their pain differently um, than adults do? They can. They absolutely can. They can have behavior changes. Um, they can, you know, uh, perform, you know, differently at school. Um, they can act out. They can have sleep problems. Um, you know, all kinds of different behaviors can can manifest from um, a child that's having a chronic a chronic pain. Well, and certainly some of your patient population doesn't speak yet. So are you having to discern different types of cries and and things of that nature to determine if someone's, if a, if a baby's in pain, say? Uh, we do. And uh, we take a lot of the information from parents as well, because as we all know, parents know their children best. Um, so we take a lot of information from parents and uh, we ask about behaviors and um, performances and that kind of thing. Um, and we see, we see pain in, um, in what I do in our rheumatology clinic, as well as our integrative medicine center. And in rheumatology, some of the diseases that you deal with, pain is a big part of it, right? Absolutely. And many of those rheumatologic conditions, there's a reason for the pain, though. There's an actual um, reason. It's, it's um, you know, an inflammatory response to whatever condition, whether it's juvenile arthritis or dermatomyositis or, um, you know, we have, even have patients with something called hypermobility arthralgia and patellofemoral syndrome. Um, but then, you know, sometimes there's non-inflammatory um, pain syndromes, and uh, we often see those patients, too, in, in our rheumatology center. And after we've ruled out um, a rheumatologic condition that might be causing the pain, I often have those patients follow up in our integrative medicine center because then there we have um, resources and time to talk about many of these other options to help treat pain other than just medication. I definitely want to talk about the integrative medicine center, but first let's talk more about, um, in, in terms of pain, um, does stress play a role in contributing or causing pain? Oh, absolutely. Stress has a big part in contributing to pain. Um, you know, stress, um, any kind of mental health problems can, um, can kind of add to um, whatever pain processes are going on. So um, a child whose, uh, you know, home life or whatever is stressful, may, that may show up as pain in, in the child, right? Yes, it can show up as pain or it could um, add to, um, you know, a pain syndrome that's already there. So let's talk about what integrative medicine has to offer in the way of um, stress reduction or um, pain management, um, particularly for children, because that's what you focus on, right? Absolutely. Um, well, there are many, many options in, um, in, in, with integrative medicine for pain um, and pain syndromes. There, um, you know, in my clinic, we, um, we talk about everything from nutrition and GI health, um, because that's a very, very important part um, um, part in, in, in pain, um, as well as um, botanical and dietary supplements. We talk about manual medicine, movement therapies, and even some traditional Chinese um, medicine therapies such as acupuncture. Um, we spend a lot of time talking about mind-body medicine. So things such as guided imagery and music therapy um, can really, really help patients with, um, with pain, as well as with stress, stress and anxiety that can add to the pain. Um, other things are clinical hypnosis is very helpful, um, biofeedback therapy as well um, can all help with, um, 
with pain. Now, are these things that are meant to help um, immediately or over the long haul? Um, it depends on what it is. So a lot of them can help over the long haul. I like to think of a lot of these things that um, I talk about my patients with as tools. So I kind of put it in, um, in this way, that I'm teaching them tools that they can put in their toolbox, their toolbox that they will have throughout their whole entire lives. And when they are coming across a problem, such as pain, also stress, anxiety, um, uh, you know, things like that, sleep trouble, um, they can pull out each tool and, and use it appropriately. Um, so we do a lot of education uh, regarding all these therapies for our patients. Other um, therapies can help um, quicker though. So um, I do some teaching about certain yoga poses that um, can kind of, you know, might help with um, uh, pain right in the moment or stress right in the, in the moment. Um, our nurse in our integrative medicine center, Vicki Keeler, performs a couple energy therapies. One is called healing touch. Another is called reflexology. And uh, usually our patients feel much better uh, no matter what's going on uh, right after those sessions end, which is really, really nice. And, you know, they come back for more. Um, so it depends on, you know, what therapy we're talking about. Interesting. Well, uh, this is HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Upstate's Dr. Caitlin Scarlett DeLuca. Uh, she's a specialist in pediatric integrative medicine. Um, and before the break, you mentioned that nutrition has an important role in pain. So I wanted to get you to elaborate on that. Or does that sure. Are you saying that there's certain things that we can eat um, that either contribute to the pain or that would help? Oh, absolutely. So just a little background on that. Of course, digestion and nutrition play key roles in, um, in regaining and maintaining health. So good nutrition depends on good digestion and good absorption of the nutrients from our GI tracts. Um, you know, the gut is colonized by a vast uh, community of microbes that have important effects on uh, many physiologic systems in our body. And so in thinking in that way, in treating pain patients, normalizing our gut function is very essential. Um, things like stress, you know, whether from our everyday life or stress from pain can dramatically actually change the gastrointestinal environment. Um, there's a lot of research going into the gut microbiome these days. It's very, very um, interesting and we're finding it's very, very powerful in helping many conditions. Um, now the thing about chronic pain is a lot of patients with chronic pain, um, they're living with the stress that actually is caused by their pain and they have many disruptions in many aspects of their lives. And um, a lot of times we see um, these patients, um, their nutrition uh, becomes very less than optimal because of all of these other things that they're trying to deal with. And uh, sometimes they uh, turn to foods that are actually pro-inflammatory and nutrient poor as their primary source of food. And that just adds to the whole cascade of disrupting the gut microflora and, um, you know, adding to their problems, actually. So I always like to focus, um, when I talk about diet and nutrition with many of my patients, and these are patients that have non-inflammatory conditions as well as inflammatory conditions, but a focus on an anti-inflammatory way to eat is, um, is the best way to go. And you can call it an anti-inflammatory diet. I always say I don't like the word diet itself, right. but diet in the way that that, um, you're just eating to, to live and to create your, the healthy environment of your body. We are actually what we eat, which is amazing. So yes, there are 
many foods that are um, that fight inflammation in the body. So tell me if um, if you're feeling bad, you know, some people crave the traditional comfort foods, um, macaroni and cheese, um, potatoes and gravy. I don't know. Those are probably right. not on your list of foods to eat. No, right? no, not really. Um, but I do like to say, of course, everything in moderation. Sure. But like eighty to ninety percent of um, of the focus of an anti-inflammatory diet should be, um, you know, whole healthy foods, a lot of vegetables, um, you know, fruits and vegetables, plant-based proteins, nuts, seeds, um, you know, healthy fats, fats from avocado, fats from nuts, um, omega-3 fatty acids are wonderful and, and, and very, um, um, they're very um, anti-inflammatory. And then, you know, there are certain, um, there are certain foods that are, that have a very po- very very potent um, uh, anti-inflammatory effect. Things such as garlic and ginger, cinnamon, turmeric is wonderful. Neat, neat. Well, let me ask you about some of the other services that you um, ticked off that are offered through the Pediatric Integrative Medicine Center: um, hypnosis, um, guided imagery, yoga. Are these things that have um, been proven, are they interventions that have been proven to be helpful? Yes, there is much research on all of these things. There's um, a body of research on hypnosis itself as well as guided imagery. Um, Yoga has a lot of research behind it. Um, uh, You know, the manual therapies have some research behind them. Um, So things like Tai Chi, um, uh, osteopathic manipulative medicine, and chiropractics are two types of manual medicine that have um, a body of research behind them. Even things such as music therapy, which seems so simple, and art therapy, um, they both have bodies of research behind them. Um, And then there's acupuncture. Acupuncture has um, some research behind it, but acupuncture itself has been used for um, thousands of years to treat many conditions, and and pain is one of them, pain and and drug addiction, too. And so, say, music, if music therapy doesn't work for someone, perhaps one of these other things, you you call them tools. Yes. Um, So you you have a bunch of things to offer. Absolutely. And um, I find that some of my patients gravitate towards one thing versus another, and that's fine. But I like to kind of talk about all of them with them eventually over time. So so they have options. Neat. Now, is this um, Pediatric Integrative Medicine Center, is this only open to upstate patients? Or how could someone listening find out more information if if they're interested. Oh, no, not at all. Um, of course, we have many of our upstate uh, patients referred, um, you know, from other um, uh, other other colleagues of mine uh, throughout our department, um, but anybody can uh, be referred to our Pediatric Integrative Medicine Center. Okay. And then um, lastly, are these integrative therapies ever paired with medical treatment? Sometimes they are. Um, so, um, yeah, so obviously a lot of my rheumatology patients require medications. Um, you know, that's just sometimes we need medications, obviously, to treat the underlying disease. Uh, but we often pair whatever they need with these, um, you know, integrative therapies. Um, and then sometimes our patients that, you know, aren't our rheumatology patients, something else is going on, is sometimes we, we also use medications um, again, with these integrative therapies. Not always. Of course, we always try to stay away from medication if, you know, if we can, but, you know, sometimes we do need it. What's the age range of patients that you see in the Integrative Medicine Center? I've seen patients as young as two, and I've seen patients as old as 22. Okay, so the whole, the whole, the whole gamut, gamut, yes, (laughs) which makes it, which makes it fun for us, and, um, 
you know, and it keeps us on our toes and, um, you know, it's wonderful. We're always seeking out new therapies. We're always trying to learn about new things just to help our, um, all of our various patients. Well, good. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate you um, explaining this to us. My guest has been Assistant Professor of Pediatrics, Dr. Caitlin Scarlett DeLuca. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next up, robotic chest surgery on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Upstate has a chest surgeon who specializes in minimally invasive and robotic thoracic surgery. So we've asked Dr. Mark Cry to talk with us about the work he does. Thanks for stopping by. Thanks for having me, Amber. I appreciate it. So when I looked on your physician profile on the upstate.edu website, there's there's lots of things listed under the diseases and conditions treated, and it wasn't just lung diseases. So um, what what does thoracic encompass? Sure. So thoracic really encompasses a broad spectrum of diseases, uh, both benign and malignancy or cancers uh, associated within the chest cavity. It really covers everything uh, in the chest outside of uh, open heart surgery. So there's lung, uh, there's esophagus, um, there's airway, um, any diseases, again, benign or cancerous, we treat um an area of the chest called the mediastinum, which kind of sits uh, beneath the breastbone um, all the way back to the spine. And there can be a lot of different um, cancers or non-cancerous lesions that show up there that we operate on, as well as uh, going down into the abdomen and uh, working on um, hiatal hernias. Uh, and when we have to do esophagectomies or removal of the esophagus for cancer or other conditions where we have to remove the esophagus, we have to reroute the plumbing, so to speak, and manipulate and, and form a, a new conduit either from the colon or from the stomach more commonly. Um, so it, it's a very broad spectrum and, and a wide variety of, of operations. So everything from neck to abdomen. Pretty much. Yeah, okay. exactly. So um, let's talk about robotic surgery and how it's used mm-hmm. in, in this field. Sure. So uh, robotic surgery is a, a relatively new and cutting-edge technology. It's been around for... Uh, Around 2000 is when the first cases of the first robotic surgery uh, that, as we know it today, the initial robots were uh, utilized back in even as early as the 80s. Um, They were kind of developed um, through the Department of Defense to try and with the mindset of having uh, the ability to operate on astronauts when they're Mm. in space. So the surgeon could be on Earth and on the ground and, and need be, and it didn't really pan out that way, but um, as with a lot of things, they're able to use the technology from the Department of Defense and apply it towards the civilian life. And so um, it's really uh, developed and, and blossoming, especially in the field of thoracic surgery, where um, a long time ago, the well, in, even today, but more frequently, um, the incisions that we would have to make involved a big, uh, what's called thoracotomy, or a, a 
incisions several inches long uh, along the rib space and you'd have to open and spread the ribs and it caused a lot of pain and discomfort and um, and the recovery from that is substantial too, substantially right? longer you know weeks to months um, whereas now we're able to uh, do some of those same operations with incisions that are uh, about a centimeter big about four incisions that are about a centimeter big and one that's a little bit bigger and do the same type of operations we you know we still do have to use a bigger incision sometimes for certain uh, operations, but uh, a vast majority of them are now more minimally invasive. And the word robotic, I mean, just so people don't have a vision of a robot doing the surgery, um, it's just a tech a t- tool sort it, it, of. it is yeah so it's a it's a platform where um it's uh, uh where instruments uh ports are inserted uh similar to our, our vats procedures or video assisted thoracoscopic procedures a lot of people know it uh comparable to like a laparoscopic gallbladder removal or something along those lines uh and, th- that, and that's been around for a while that's right? been around for a long time exactly um and so vats was really adopted and, and became mainstream in the thoracic field uh in the 90s and so uh and it's continued to be utilized today although when you look at worldwide a vast majority of the operations on the in for lung surgery especially are still done open and so it still hasn't caught on everywhere um but these smaller incisions really speed the ability to recover, uh, to get out of the hospital sooner, um, and to uh, really get back to uh, normal life, so to speak, um, much quicker than uh, the big open incisions. Now, like from a technical standpoint, from the surgeon's point of view, is it a more difficult surgery when it's you know laparoscopic or robotic versus open? It, it can be more technically challenging. Um, and that's the difficult, and that's the one of the big differences between VATS and robotic is um, because with a, a VATS or a thoracoscopic approach, you're looking at a screen and it's in two dimensions, and the instruments are uh, on long sticks, so to speak, with some you know type of grasping device or cutting device at the end, and so uh, there is a lot more technical. Um, challenges from that standpoint doing it through those small incisions with um you know you kind of have to train your brain and how your hands have to move in order to get things done whereas robotically um the visualization is three-dimensional uh so it's kind of the difference between when you go to the movies watching a regular movie and watching a 3d movie uh you can see the the depth and depth perception is, is drastically different uh, robotically versus uh, bats. The magnification is improved, so the optics are improved, so you can see better. better. And the wrist, the instruments are wristed, so they have the seven degrees of motion that our upper extremities do. Uh, And so the the things we're able to do robotically mimic more what you can do for an open operation. And so it really has expanded the types of procedures and the complexity of the procedures that we can do minimally invasively versus what a majority of people would be able to do thoracoscopically. Now, you know, the world-renowned experts in the field of VATS can probably do anything, but it's not everyone can see the world-renowned expert in, in VATS. And so um, robotic surgery allows us to really push the envelope into the complexity of things that we can do, whereas um, even still today, people who don't do robotic surgery would be more apt to do that as an open thoracotomy operation. Now, when you're doing it robotically, does it feel like a video game? Um, it, I guess uh, all those uh, 
hours I wasted in my <laughs> I used in my earlier years to uh, uh, play video games were, were were not a complete loss. Because um, you're, you're you've got uh, the hand. You are. So you're sitting at a console away from the patient, and that's one of the things that. Um, especially some of the older surgeons have a tough time doing because you're not right there at the patient. The The robot is on a platform, it's brought in, the arms are docked and the instruments are inserted in there. And then the surgeon actually sits uh, a few feet away from the patient at the console. And so you're using the controls and visualizing through excellent visualization, sometimes even better than you can get with a big open operation because you're right there close up um, and using the controls. And so, um, you know, we don't take it lightly like it's a video game, but there is um, some of that hand-eye coordination that, um, you know, you, you develop. Uh, if right. You were, no, there's you definitely know, a finesse to it. If, the, oh, for sure. For sure. <laughs> so now what is the typical type of um, thoracic surgery that you would do robotically? Um, a lot of what I do, what, uh, what I do here at Upstate is uh, robotic lung surgery. So um, the gold standard for lung cancer is a lobectomy. Uh, which is uh, removal of one of the lobes of the lung. Um, on the right side, you have three lobes, and on the left side, you have two lobes. And so if you have a cancerous lesion in one of those lobes, the gold standard is to remove that whole lobe. The whole lobe. The whole lobe. Um, what we're finding now is that smaller cancers that are further out in the lung towards the periphery maybe don't need the whole lobe to have as good of a cancer operation and they can have what's called a segment so each one of those lobes is made up of an individual segment which has its own artery and vein and airway and so if we can go in and divide those artery vein and airway and remove that segment with our special staplers they get just about as good of a cancer operation and also you're able to spare some of their lung function and that's uh robotic surgery has really helped us be able to develop that and implement that more often because it's because you're having to dissect out and divide even smaller vessels and airways, it becomes more challenging. Uh, can still be done thoracoscopically. It can be done open, but uh, it, it, the robot really is suited to do that because of the very precise and fine dissection that you, you utilize. Neat. Um, this is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Upstate thora thoracic surgeon, Dr. Mark Cry, about minimally invasive robotic chest surgery. Mm -hmm. So th the lungs are considered a solid organ, right? Correct. So um, are they full of air like a balloon? Like when you cut into them, do they deflate? It's or more what? like a sponge. More like They're a kind sponge. of like a wet sponge. And so it's um, the uh, how we operate when we operate on the lungs. Uh, the breathing tube that is put in by anesthesia when the patient goes to sleep, it's a special breathing tube. It actually has two lumens. And so we're able to collapse the lung we're working on and also keep inflating and breathing through the, through the other. other lung. Oh. And so by collapsing that lung down, it makes it easier to work with, uh, easier to dissect and staple and those kind of things. And then at the end of the operation, breathe in both lungs and, and expand the lung that we were working on. And it comes right back to comes the right back up. So um, you mentioned the the tiny incisions. If you're going to mm -hmm. take out a lobe, the lobe's pretty. A lobe of a lung is pretty big. It, How does it, it fit out? It is. So that's why the fifth incision tends to be a little bit bigger, just mm -hmm. solely to remove it. And um, that comes along with you know when we start thinking about when when people first start doing robotic surgery, they try and limit the size of the tumor that they would do through a minimally invasive sure. approach. And as you get more facile in it, you can kind of push that envelope. But, you know, it comes down to the physics of you have to get the tumor out of the chest and the only way is through that incision. So um, that 
that's kind of where the the big issue comes with having to enlarge one of those, which is uh, sometimes frustrating because you do this great operation through all these small incisions, and then you have to make one uh, a little bit bigger. And uh, but people do really well with it. But still, way smaller than what you still would have way smaller than what you would yeah. with a thoracotomy, absolutely. So, which patients? Well, which patients are candidates for robotic? It kind of depends on the tumor size. It, right? it does. So it depends on the tumor size, um, the location of the tumor. So tumors that are uh, closer towards the hilum or where the blood vessels start and where they come out of the heart and oh, okay. enter into the lung. Um, those tend to be a little bit higher risk of um, things like bleeding and complications. Uh, but again, the more experience you have robotically, the more likely you are to try doing those through a robotic approach, at least to start. And if you have to convert to an open approach, that's perfectly okay. You want to make sure you're doing a good cancer operation and doing a good safe operation. As long as you can do those two principles through a minimally invasive approach, fantastic. That's the way we do it. If either one of those two principles risk being compromised, then you do an open incision and, and make a bigger uh, incision. But um, I think that's one of the big benefits of the robot is those types of operations are... Uh, people have been less likely to want to do thoracoscopically. Bigger tumors, more centrally located, uh, whereas now, um, you know, with the robotic approach, we're able to really kind of push that envelope. And everybody on the team is is skilled in doing either. Absolutely. Yeah, so. absolutely. So um, what about outcomes in terms of comparing the opens sure. with the robotics? So is... the, the, the good thing is that... Uh, when you look at the cancer data, and because robotic uh, thoracic surgery is still relatively new and in its infancy, we don't have the long-term 10 and 20-year data that we do with uh, some of the other approaches. But um, what we see in uh, at least the data we have now shows that it's equivalent from a cancer operation standpoint to the big open operations. The big benefit we find is that patients get out of the hospital substantially sooner, talking days sooner, uh, they need their chest tube less, um, uh, less frequent or you know shorter duration of chest tube. Uh, their post-operative pain is substantially improved. They return to their normal activities sooner, and less blood loss. So all very key, all positive aspects to behaviors. you know a good operation. So you went to medical school here at Upstate, and then you did eight years of general and thoracic surgery in Allegheny General Hospital in Pennsylvania. Correct. Um, how did you know you wanted to become a surgeon, and how did you choose thoracic surgery? Um, you know, I, I wasn't one of these people who was you know born and knew from day one that I wanted to be a surgeon. I actually, uh, when I uh, went to med school, uh, I thought for sure I was not going to be a surgeon. And I remember starting my surgery rotation saying, I am absolutely not going to be a surgeon. I just want to get through these eight weeks and everything. And then the more I did it, the more I just, I was really drawn to it. You know, the ability to um, interact and intervene on somebody and, and do something that can fix them right then and there. And it's not um, something where they're getting a medication and you have to see if it works. And sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. This is the ability to really intervene right then and there with your hands, be able to do something and, and fix people or potentially cure people and that really just hit home with me and um from a thoracic standpoint it was uh you know during my training I, I 
I was able to scrub in on a few cases early on in my first year and it really just there's something about it that gravitated uh, me towards it working in the chest and everything and um, as I'm sure most people can attest to they, they have some family members or close friends with who've experienced lung cancer and, and uh, you know my grandfather and my mother both uh, suffered from lung cancer and so that really kind of hit home with me to be able to kind of try and help cure it or you know eradicate what we can well interesting well thank you so much for your time I appreciate well thank being you here. for uh thank you for having me amber i really appreciate it my guest has been dr mark cry a thoracic surgeon at upstate i'm amber smith for upstate's podcast and talk show health link on air Next up, Afghanistan and how a physician scientist at Upstate is giving back. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. State Medical University. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Dr. Mobin Karimi is an assistant professor of microbiology and immunology at Upstate and a native of Afghanistan who is giving back through a project we invited here, him here to talk about. Welcome. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to start by asking about your background. Um, you were born in Afghanistan. Um, yes, I was born in Afghanistan and I went to medical school there and I came to uh, Stanford, California, where I completed my medical training, and I obtained my PhD from University of Massachusetts, and oh. I did my postdoctoral training at the University of Pennsylvania, okay. uh, and then I came here in July 2017 as a professor. Came here professor. to Syracuse? Yes. Okay. Well, um, you spent some time in refugee camp. Yes, right? I grew up in the refugee camp. Um, from what age? At the age of 10. Okay. And then um, you worked in a war zone. Can you tell me about that? Yeah. So at the very young age, I lost uh, most member of my family, and uh, is most Afghan. We became refugee between Afghanistan and Pakistan. Living in the refugee camps um, was uh, was hard. But I went to school there, and my objective is was to complete my education, go abroad. Um, in the refugee camp, there was an English newspaper. I worked there at night to learn English, and um, uh, th there was no uh, c compensation for my work, but it was uh, primarily to learn English. And I used the language to get a job at the International Red Crescent. International Red Crescent is like uh, Red Cross. Okay. But in the Muslim countries, they call them Red Crescent. And uh, my job was to take um, surgeons nurses and um, general physician from the border region between Afghanistan and Pakistan to inside Afghanistan so they can assess the medical condition inside Afghanistan. Okay. And uh, one of that trip, we were traveling to, from, from Pakistan to Afghanistan um, 
we our jeep our car was attacked and we lost two surgeons and I was wounded so I was transferred to Germany for treatment. So I spent a year in Germany and went back to Afghanistan and continued to work with the uh, Red Crescent and um, Dr. Paul Cutler who is an American surgeon uh, live in Palo Alto, California. He sponsored um, me to the United States and that's how I came here. So you spent a year in Germany um, uh, during rehabilitation. From yes, yes, some, yes, It sounded treatment. like some pretty severe injuries. To so, so it went from the from one side of the leg, it come out the bullet to the other oh. side of the leg. So the the bone was pretty much fractured. So in order to make it even, they have to cut the other side of the bone equally, so that I will be even. Otherwise, I will be a few inches shorter one leg wow. versus the other leg. Well, did that experience, is that what sort of um, interested you in medicine and science? Did that? Yes, I am. Um, interested in medicine was at a very young age. My mom died um, when I was two days old, and I always asked my father and my sisters, where's my mother? Mm-hmm. And my mother died because um, we were twin, me and my sister, and uh, um, I survived, uh, but my sister strangled herself to umbilical cord, and my mom, my, my, by the time they took my mother to the hospital, it was too late. She had excessive bleeding. So I always wanted to become a physician so I can go back to the society and, and help people. Huh. Uh, so it was, a, it was a young age dream, and uh, I succeeded in that. It sounds like it. Thank you. So, and you do microbiology and immunology here at Upstate. Tell me what uh, what you're involved in. What are your projects here? So there, in hematological cancer, there are two kinds of primarily cancer. One happened in the cells there and the periphery that are circulating in your body called either B cells or T cells. And there are a lot of treatments available for them, either pharmacological treatment or also there's a thing called CAR T cells, which was developed in uh, University of Pennsylvania. But the um, majority of the people don't have that kind of hematological cancer. majority of the people have cancer in the bone marrow. They're called, um, it, it's derived from stem cells. Okay. So what happens if you treat them, the symptom, what happens, the cancer relapses back. So the, one of the effective treatments for, for the bone, marrow derived, bone marrow-derived hematological malignancy is bone marrow transplant. And bone marrow transplant, if you do it for, if you perform it from the relative, that's uh, called HLA or genetically matched the person, there is a less chance uh, that they will that they will uh, engraft it because basically, if you're genetically related and the bone can, the, the cancer is in the bone marrow, it will definitely relapse. There is a ninety percent chance relapse. So we have to perform it from people who are not genetically related. Okay. So the chances are that they will not relapse. Interesting. So in order for bone marrow to engraft, we have to give them some mature T-cells. T-cells are circulating cells in your body, and they fight against um, bacteria, against uh, viruses, against many things. So without that T-cells, the bone marrow will not engraft. And you needed that T-cells to eliminate malignancy. So basically a patient come to the clinic, uh, we give them chemotherapy and radiation, and eventually we, we do call allogenic bone marrow transplant, which is from non-genetically related people. And 
between 20 to 80% of these people will develop a disease called Graf-Forsen's host disease. So the donor, the mature donor T cells will engraft the stem cells into the recipient and they will also eliminate most of the malignant cells, but they will also attack host because those mature T cells are not developed in the body of the recipient during the development. So it's like a body rejecting? So it, so it will, so since the patients are, uh, receive heavy chemotherapy and radiation, their immune system cannot fight back. So these donor T cells come and they proliferate, they produce this molecule called cytokines, and they also try to kill anything that comes in their way. And the major organs that get damaged are uh, liver, small intestine, and skin. Basically, patients um, who are suffering from graft versus host disease, in a, in a human, their skin kind of falling out hmm. apart. Hmm. But um, organ damage is significant uh, risk for those GBHD patients. So my research is involved since the graft versus host disease is caused by T cells, mature T cells. You need that T cell uh, for engraftment and you need that T cells to fight malignant cells. So we modulate those T cells signaling that they will fight the cancer cells, but they will not fight the human normal cells. Very neat. Okay. So we do a lot of uh, engineering in the mouse models and we do a lot of correlative study with the human p patient that they have similar disease. Wow. Well, that's got some promise. Um, tell me about your trip back home to Afghanistan last fall. So the rest of my family and brothers and sisters, they live in Afghanistan. I live here with my own family in Milius, New York. Um, when I went there September 2017, um, after five, six years, uh, I had a hope that Afghanistan would uh, be a progress towards prosperity and there will be school, there will be clinics. Um, but the whole district that I live, they don't have a single school. And uh, the, the other point is that Afghanistan has a very, very high uh, infor, uh, infant and uh, maternal mortality rate, anywhere between 40 to 60 percent, mm. uh, just because the lockup uh, medical facilities and the clinics and the hospitals in the areas, there's not many. And the uh, literacy rate? The literacy rate too. is very, very high, anywhere between 80 to 90 percent. Um, so. As I mentioned earlier, my dream was to become a physician to help hack society in Afghanistan, even though I came to America, but the situation in Afghanistan has not been improved in the past 40 years since my, mo my mother passed away. Uh, so we established um, uh, basically one organization called Education for Afghan Children. It has uh, two purposes. One is to build... Um, uh, elementary school from the age of, uh, from the from the from first grade all the way to sixth grade, uh, so from fifth from uh, the age of five and all the way to ten, and the second purpose is to build um, uh, healthcare facility. So the healthcare facilities involved um, training Afghan women to become midwives, and that's one of the good model that has been working so far for us. Uh, because we can't take a doc doctor from the cities or from outside to work with us inside Afghanistan. So we primarily focus on the women they lost their husband due to war. Okay. So the female population uh, in, some of the, in some countries when they 
they lose husband, they become like a, a property of somebody else. So now we came along and we recruited those uh, women. We gave them six-month training. And after six-month training, uh, if they're interested, we give them six-month more training and total up 18-month training. Uh, so here was a female that she was a burden in the society. She considered a property of someone. Now she has a respect in the society. She become a life savior. And, and, and a career. Right? And a career. So we don't expect anything back from them in return, but we ask them if they can contribute 10% of their time back to the society so they can help us to improve this organization. Uh, so we face a lot of challenges um, we apply to USAID for ad uh, to to fund our project, um, but that didn't go well with the with the society. So what we did is we, uh, we we talked to the tribal elders in the community, and the tribal elder assured us that they will work with us. So we have a five member uh, council of the tribe, and they pretty much run the organization, and they pretty much. Uh, uh, agree to all of our, uh, the th- everything we ask for it. Um, we also ask the Taliban to not harm us and give us the permission to educate Afghan boys and girls. And we specifically wrote this in the application that girls will be educated. And so, also, how do you just ask the Taliban? Right. It, it, it is um, it's very interesting because uh, in Afghanistan, in order for everything to work, you have to have a support of the tribes. So tribe support is essential. Since we don't have any outside ties and we can ask for donation, for funding from any uh, resources without any attachment, therefore the tribe believed us and we are among the people that um, they work with us. So we, with the tribal elder, we went to the Taliban and they agreed to every demand we ask, uh, especially educating Afghan women to become midwives, Afghan boys and girls, and we specifically wrote in the application that between first grade to sixth grade will be co-education. And they're okay with females? They, they, they are okay with educated? us. They give us a permission, and we wrote their letters of approval in our website, uh, afghaneducation.org, and uh, we have their letters, and we also went to the government. We asked them for their permission to the Afghan government, and they also agree with us. We also... Uh, apply to United Nations for um, be a consultant organization. Were you surprised that the Taliban is supportive of this, though? I was really surprised, but um, when we talked to them, they were uh, I, I was shocked uh, that, that they would be agreed, but they agreed to support our organization, and they gave us an official letter uh, that, that girls and boys will be educated in this uh, school, and also, the, also women will be educated in this facility. So it was a surprise, but I think the need is, is so much. Everybody realized that uh, the Afghan society needs a lot of help. And to the, I, I, live, I grew up in the rural area in Afghanistan, and, I, and the school and the midwife training center has been built in the rural area of Afghanistan. So since there is a lockup, total lockup medical facilities, and in order for the Taliban to function in these communities, they have to have a support from the tribes. And tribes need that help. Tribes need our help to educate the uh, children and edu- educate the Afghan women. Because if you have a s- between 40 to 6% infant mortality rate, 
uh, that that is significantly higher than any part of the world. Well, the the Taliban has those same uh, issues with health care, not ha- and having a high infant mortality rate, right, among their yeah, children and among their children. Among. So, would some of the Taliban children be at the school too? So we are, since we are not a political organization, um, and we open to anybody who are local living in that area as long as they can commute to our school. Um, you know, nobody is born to be a Taliban or a government or poor American and anti-American. They're children. They need to be educated. And education is the key for prosperity, and education is the key for the future of Afghanistan. Well, this is very interesting. I appreciate you telling us about Education for the Afghan Children. This is your nonprofit that you've established. Um, my guest has been Dr. Mobin Karimi. He's an assistant professor of microbiology and immunology at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Oh, to live with a poet who loves you. Could anything be better? Listen to two poets whose poems reassure their beloveds, imperiled by illness, that they are not alone. First is Jennifer L. Freed, whose work appears in JAMA and the Common Ground Review. Here is her poem, Air. When you called to tell me about the tumors the doctor felt in your womb today, I thought of the way you turned toward me when I come home at night, that light in your eyes, the ease of your smile. And then I saw the curve of your arm at the piano, heard the familiar phrases of your play, mere movement of air singing of you, and how the air eddies and lifts when you walk into my study bringing fresh tea and how the air shifts to fill the stillness when you walk away without talk, without wanting talk to disturb my work. I thought of this house without you breathing in it, rooms undisturbed by anyone but me, and there I turned away from thought, there I could not bear to dwell. Next is psychiatrist and professor of psychiatry and ethics, Ronald Pies, who has written several books on psychiatry, ethics, and spirituality, in addition to his poetry chapbook, The Myloma Years. Here is his poem, Lady of the Lake. Our lake is warm in her shallows this blue July, her shore a tangle of thick milfoil. A mother merganser and her chicks parade along the pier, and large-mouthed bass brush against our legs. This was where you couldn't swim last year. After the transplant, the lake's microbes were your marrow's nemesis. A mile up the road, the beach is closed by a surge of blue-green algae. An official sign warns, treat every algal bloom as a threat to health and life. Thirty years now you've been my wife. Today I watch you slice through clear water with Olympian strokes, beaming your summer camp smile. I dog paddle behind you, eyes peeled for blue-green blooms, as I beg the lake for her benediction.
This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, rethinking appendectomies. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes and other podcast sources by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening. Thank you.